The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform. You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 16th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme... Despite freezing temperatures, Donald Trump wins a record margin in the Iowa caucus. We want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. We love you all. What a turnout. What a crowd. We'll assess what the confirmed frontrunner's possible return to the White House means for global security. Also ahead, fighting erupts in western Myanmar, close to the border with India and Bangladesh. We'll hear from Davos on what blockchain can do for the global economy, plus... And the Emmy goes to... Succession. Tinseltown turns out for the delayed Emmy Awards with Sir Elton John joining a very exclusive club as he finally says goodbye to the Yellow Brick Road. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Well, the sequel has officially begun. Donald Trump has won a landslide victory in the Iowa caucuses, cementing his status as the clear frontrunner for the Republicans in 2024. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis managed to edge out former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, but it was still a distant second place. Haley had hoped to ride polling momentum to come second, but DeSantis's relentless campaigning in the state paid off. Meanwhile, biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy came fourth before dropping out of the race to endorse Trump. In his victory speech, Trump had this to say about escalating geopolitical tensions. We want to come together, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative. It would be so nice if we could come together and straighten out the world and straighten out the problems and straighten out all of the death and destruction that we're witnessing. That's practically never been like this. It's uh, just so important. And I want to make that a very big part of our message. We're going to come together. It's going to happen soon, too. It's going to happen soon. For leaders waking up around the world to the news, the now very viable prospect of a second Trump term means rapid global security contingency planning will be needed. 
I'm joined now by Scott Lucas, an adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute at the University College Dublin. Scott, thank you for joining us. Firstly, Donald Trump has signalled this time America first essentially means American isolationism once again, with withdrawal from NATO highly likely. What would his plans mean for global stability? Well, first of all, if I may, just, you know, because a lot of U.S. media are jumping the gun here. Um, Donald Trump has not confirmed the fact that he's the Republican nominee based on 100,000 people who turned out in the frigid conditions in Iowa. Uh, This was a preliminary skirmish. Trump is certainly the favorite to get the nomination, but the critical contest will come next week in New Hampshire, which is a primary rather than a caucus. And we'll see if Nikki Haley is a viable alternative, both to Trump's approach to Europe and to Trump's uh, candidacy. On the question of America first, look, this isn't new about Donald Trump. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that while he was president for years, Donald Trump tried to break U.S. relations with a number of countries. Um, he wanted to bring the U.S. out of NATO during the first term. He had appointees who tried to break apart the European Union, worked with politicians here in the U.K. who wanted to break apart the European Union, and he threatened other multilateral organizations, including the U.N. So now this is a secret. So that contingency planning you've been talking about It was already going on during Trump's term as president, and even with the prospect that he would, after failing to succeed in a coup and come back into office in 2021, would run again for president. Uh, How serious a threat he will be if he becomes president is in part due to uh, the contingency planning it's made, but it's especially due to the American system. Uh, There are still people in agencies like the Defense Department, the State Department, uh, the Economic Departments who do not share Trump's vision of effectively sabotaging uh, any partner or ally who does not bend the knee to Donald Trump. And I suspect we will again see a contest between those agencies and Trump should he become president in January 2025. There was a lot of resilience in those agencies in his last administration, but there are also now a, a cabal of people around him very different to those last time who are much more yes-men. Uh, and there are reports that they have been trying to uh, create pools of people that they can put into those agencies to override some of the safeguards. How concerning is some of that reporting? Well, again, this is not new. I mean, the the cabal that you're talking about, the names that come up, for example, are people like Stephen Miller, uh, you know, the xenophobic aide uh, who rose to prominence from being a low-level speechwriter during the Trump administration. It's people like Steve Bannon, who, escaping prison because of a Trump pardon, uh, once again wants to become the chief strategist uh, in Trump's next White House. Uh, We've seen these folks before, and the U.S. agencies will know they're on their way again, uh, trying to uh, sabotage, hijack those agencies. Again, not new. Trump did that, of course, with the Justice Department in part to protect himself uh, from impeachment and conviction, most notably by putting William Barr in as attorney general. And then in the final days of his administration, as he tried to overturn the 2020 election, he tried to put appointees in the national security departments, in defense, in CIA, in state. Uh, there will simply have to be a contest or, as it were, a continued attempt for accountability in terms of what Trump does regarding initially his appointments that he makes to these agencies. We need that accountability from the press and we actually need it. And here is, I think, the big question mark. We need it from Republicans in Congress. Will they stand up to Trump if he tries to break the U.S. system or will they finally break their codependency with him? 
And turning to some of the specific issues around the world and the hotspots now. Firstly, uh, he's long claimed the invasion of Ukraine somehow wouldn't have happened under his watch. If he does return to the White House, what do you expect his shift in policy might be? Well, the number one person who will cheer a Trump election, possibly, uh, and an inauguration will be Vladimir Putin in Moscow. Let's be clear about this. Trump admires Vladimir Putin. Trump uh, said during his years as president that, uh, in effect, uh, Russia did not illegally seize Crimea in 2014, did not take over part of eastern Ukraine, starting the cycle of events that led to its invasion in 2022. And Donald Trump, of course, blackmailed Ukraine, froze military aid to it in 2019 um, in an attempt to get the Zelensky government to dish dirt on Joe Biden. Um, Trump resents the fact that he was impeached because of that, even if he escaped conviction because of his uh, Republican defenders. So I have no doubt that he will try to uh, cut American assistance to Ukraine and indeed will even lobby on behalf of Moscow in various ways uh, that somehow they are the victim and not the aggressor in this conflict. And turning to Taiwan, President Biden has shifted the US's position somewhat to a more strategic ambiguity in the event of a Chinese invasion. What do we expect Trump would do? Well, I think more broadly what Biden has done looking beyond Taiwan, because I would also bring in the economic relations, I would bring in the question of the South China Sea, I would bring in the question of multilateral diplomacy, which could involve the Chinese, is to get back to the rules of the game. The issue with Trump, not only with respect to Taiwan, but in general with China is there are no rules of the game. Um, you could consider, for example, that on, uh, although he didn't speak specifically about what he would do with Taiwan, his back and forth over North Korea, where he threatened nuclear annihilation with North Korea at one moment and then embraced Kim Jong-un the next. Uh, he has, of course, launched a trade war, uh, one of the biggest trade wars in American history with the Chinese, but he's also called Xi Jinping a great president, a president for life. So in other words, we simply don't know which way Trump will tack on China, economically, politically, or militarily, because once again, the key with Trump is, is if you flatter him, he loves you. And I have no doubt that the Chinese, if he becomes president in January 2025, will say what a great guy the Donald is. Scott, thank you. That was Scott Lucas. Now here's Emma Searle with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. China summoned the Philippines ambassador in Beijing earlier today after President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. congratulated Taiwan's new president, William Lai, on his election win. China's foreign ministry warned Manila not to play with fire. Beijing views the island of Taiwan as part of the Chinese territory. Ukraine claims to have destroyed a Russian spy plane over the Sea of Azov. Kyiv says Moscow's forces had used the plane to prepare for and conduct long-range missile strikes on Ukraine. The downing of the aircraft could be a major blow to Russia's air power. And Uniqlo has filed a lawsuit against Shein, claiming the Chinese retailer copied its famous crossbody bag. Japan's fast retailing, which owns Uniqlo, said in a statement it is calling for Shein to halt sales of the product and for compensation. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Emma. To Asia now, where ethnic insurgents in western Myanmar say they have captured an important town from military forces on one of the main routes to India. The Arakan army, one of the three armed groups that launched a major new offensive against the military in October, says it has taken control of Paletwa in Chin State. 
The situation in Paletwar, which lies close to Myanmar's borders with both India and Bangladesh, will be closely watched by Delhi. The town is part of an ongoing multi-million dollar development project backed by India that aims to improve connectivity in the remote region. Morgan Michaels is a research fellow for Southeast Asian politics and foreign policy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, Morgan, thank you for joining us. Uh, Firstly, how significant is the capture of this town? Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, the capture of this town is quite significant uh, in this particular theater uh, because control of this town and the wider township provides the Iraq army, which is fighting the Myanmar uh, regime uh, with, with a number of new options. Uh, first of all, they can have unrestricted access to the Bangladesh and uh, Indian borders. And it also opens up a new supply route uh, to circumnavigate the military's blockade of Rakhine State, uh, where the group primarily operates. And why has India been investing in this region? India is planning to build uh, a a new route connecting uh, Kolkata uh, to its uh, northeast state of Mizoram. And so first the route will go by sea. And then in Rakhine state uh, in Myanmar, there will be a port and then a road that moves through this township uh, and also some river transport. And so it's a way to connect uh, India's very far away uh, northeastern region to Calcutta. And how did they manage to actually pull this off? And what do you think the response will be? How did the armed group manage to pull this off? So uh, on October 27, uh, two of these groups' allies launched a major offensive uh, on the other side of the country on the border with China. And it kind of caught the regime by surprise. The regime has been fighting this a war with other groups across the country for the past three three years. It's been managing to hold on, but this new offensive uh, was quite forceful. And so there was momentum gained across the country, uh, and the regime is kind of on the back foot, and so facing uh, attacks uh, in in all corners of the country. And so uh, this group has kind of been laying low and planning for years, stockpiling weapons, training, uh, arming new recruits, and it struck when the moment was right, when the military was weak, Uh, And the military seems to, uh, in some cases, uh, be a little bit unwilling to continue the fight. And why is that? What's the current situation for the military regime across the country at the moment? Well, they've suffered uh, significant territorial losses uh, in northern Shan State on the border with China. And now they're facing these continued territorial losses in the west, uh, in Rakhine and in Paletwa and Chin State. Uh, Elsewhere in the country, uh, the situation is certainly not good for the regime, although they've been managing to hold on. Uh, But generally, uh, you know, these are the most significant territorial losses the Myanmar military has faced uh, in decades. Uh, And, you know, politically, they're despised both uh, at home and abroad. They don't seem to have any much of a plan uh, for how to get themselves out of this mess. And the continued losses on the battlefield are demoralizing to the rank and file and also to some commanders within the regime. And China has been mediating talks between the factions in recent weeks. What's the progress on those? Well, there was a ceasefire agreed to um, five days ago. Uh, And so far, there were reports of a few violations, but so far it seems to uh, be holding. Uh, So we've seen a rapid deceleration of armed conflict in in the north of the country. Uh, But this is not this ceasefire has not applied to the fighting uh, in in the west of the country or anywhere else in the country. Uh, So China has been uh, putting a lot of pressure on these groups uh, along its border. Uh, And it has a lot of leverage there, but not necessarily elsewhere. 
And China has reportedly been losing millions of dollars per day in trade on that border. I mean, do they sort of care so much about the rest of the country in these talks? Or is it just to secure that region more and stop some of the um, fraud? I think there's sort of telephone fraud as well that's been happening, uh, originating there. Yeah, so I think, first of all, China has always played a role in this conflict by supporting uh, both sides. And so its goal is not to make one side win or lose, uh, but rather it looks at, you know, what are its interests and how can it secure that? And so these scam centers, uh, initially, the China had been appearing to throw its support kind of more behind the regime, uh, asking these groups to maintain ceasefire. But these scam centers uh, seem to be really a thorn in the side for Beijing. And so uh, they supported these groups. Uh, they gave probably tacit consent for this offensive. They certainly didn't uh, warn the regime ahead of time. But as this offensive began to really take off and spread to other parts of the country, uh, then China seemed to, you know, kind of want to put the brakes on it and began pressuring both sides uh, to, to come to the bargaining table. Morgan Michaels, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. I'm Vincent McAvinney coming to you live from Studio One at Midori House in London. Blockchains and tokenization are words that would go over many people's heads, yet they affect so much of our everyday lives as the world grows more digital, from buying concert tickets and clothes to the private shares market and space exploration. So what is it and why should we be excited about it? Scott Teal is the founder of Toco, an enterprise-grade tokenization engine and digital asset management platform. He sat down with Monocle's Christy O'Grady at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and she began by asking Scott to explain what a blockchain actually is. Can I change your question? Of course. <laughs> what is distributed ledger technology? Because blockchain is a form of distributed ledger technology, but there are others. Hedera, for example, isn't actually a chain of blocks. Mm-hmm. It's an acyclical graph. But essentially what it is is instead of having a single database with a single source of truth that is therefore run by a single entity and is therefore capable of being hacked and changed because you've got one point of failure... Instead, a distributed ledger technology is where you have multiple copies of the truth and you have this consensus algorithm, you have a mathematical way, and there are lots of different algorithms out there. And again, Hedera's is the highest level of consensus possible mathematically. What you have are these consensus algorithms that govern the way in which all of these different copies of the truth agree that this is in fact the truth and therefore agree when a new transaction happens, okay, we all agree this is a valid transaction, so we'll all write that down to the blockchain or the graph or whatever the the technology might be. And so that really is it, is you're moving from a single centralised source of truth to a distributed source of truth. And, And in that In that distribution, what you do is you do away with the need for a trusted central authority and the risks that come with that because, you know, humans tend to control central things as well and they are are often the the weakest point of security and and, and all sorts of other things. So that that is the fundamental difference. And tonight you're on a panel all about tokenization. Can you just explain for our listeners what tokenization is and how it may affect them and their lives? Let me scale it back because I think the word itself actually causes 
sometimes a, a reaction that maybe isn't isn't right. To me, I was a lawyer when I founded a tokenization platform, and to me, tokenization is really about the digitization of rights. So it's taking anything in the world we might know today. So you know, whether it's rights in money or rights in property or rights in contractual arrangements, financial instruments whatever they might be, but now putting into this new digital format. So tokenization literally is taking what might have been, for example, a paper-based contract or some other arrangement and now putting it into this small digital unit that can exist on a blockchain. And that digitization, if you like, is going to allow new and interesting things to happen. The, the analogy I often talk about is the digital camera and the digital, you know, taking digital photographs. What we see today is, I think it's... Uh, five orders of magnitude more photographs will be taken this year than were ever taken using traditional cameras using film so there's a lot happening in that space and it wasn't you know for, for someone as old as me who remembers the transition to, to a digital camera from a, an old an old style slr really it it was a bit of a clunky transition you had to buy memory cards they didn't hold many photos what, what do i do with this thing now and so what we're seeing i think that analogy of transition for digital with photographs and entire industries and things that could then happen once you had a, a, a picture in a digital format from instant messaging, social media, all of these kind of industries that then emerged. I think what we're going to see with the digitization of rights, i.e. tokenization, is the same sort of opportunity but to happen at a much grander scale with, you know, really the tokenization of everything, which is the, the, the focus of the panel tonight. And tokenization, it seems to affect kind of all assets of life you know from buying tickets to events exploration of space you name it it's there has it been sort of widely received well across the board has there been pushback in any certain industry what are, what are the, some of the obstacles that you've been facing yeah the the biggest obstacle and i've just come from multiple sessions today and everyone talks about this amazing promising future and then the r word comes up regulation i've been involved in helping create new regulatory regimes in different parts of the world, including in the Middle East, in Dubai. And we're seeing some very progressive regimes now starting to appear. But that isn't across the board. And some of the more traditional markets, um, there is still quite a long way to go in terms of providing clear regulatory pathways for people to do this type of, of activity. So what that's meant is we've seen explosions in unregulated digital assets. So we all saw the, you know, crypto has been a big thing, um, primarily treated as unregulated in most markets, at least, you know, during its early years. That's changing. NFTs was the next example of that, where we saw the explosion of the, you know, the digital apes and, and the other types of things that, that happened out there. And again, it showed to me that there was a lot of consumer demand for digital assets in some form or another. And people were able to issue and create these things because they were unregulated. Now, I don't, I don't personally think that's a good result because we've seen a lot of schemes that haven't been necessarily good for the for the investors or the people who are participating in buying these things and it becomes a, a place where bad actors can, can, can profit. However, the truth is that those markets exploded because people were allowed to or perceived or had the view that they were allowed to do it. Now, when you look at the more complex asset classes, the types of things you were alluding to in terms of, you know, real estate or financial instruments or whatever else, they are clearly falling within the regulated space. The issue is that a lot of the traditional TradFi regulation hasn't evolved sufficiently in, in some markets to now deal with one of those 
but in digital form because they're not necessarily that different. In fact, probably the area we're seeing the most amount of traction is people literally just digitising that which is already done. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was actually speaking to Rasmus from Morantex at AI House today and he said that, you know, one of the things he wishes is that... Um, people were allowed would be allowed to create first and then regulation would come after all that in mind is there anything that you would like to impart for our listeners um i think the observation i would make is that we've seen kind of blockchain as an industry go through a difficult period of time and we've seen a lot of frothy things happening and, and some bad things happening. There's been a lot of you know, negative press around the industry in the last couple of years uh, and none of that's good and none of that's been good for the industry. I think, you know, like with any new technology adoption, there's that kind of hype cycle of everyone sort of over over expecting early on before anything's happened and then there is that sort of valley of discontent when it turns out everything isn't necessarily uh, as it was hoped or going to be adopted as quickly and I, and I think in a sense, we're going. We've been going through that. The observation I would make is we're coming out of that now. We're now seeing real-world adoption. We're seeing things that are actually going to fundamentally change the way people live, the way businesses operate, the way trust is 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 actually managed. And we are now starting to see, you know, meaningful use cases that are going to be, you know, change the human condition. I think starting to emerge. And you know, it's interesting just walking up and down here. There's a lot of AI. I think its its value of you know disappointment is probably going to be next year, <laughs> and blockchain will be back. That's my sense because you know again, it's just interesting the way these you know the technology adoptions and the kind of probably driven by VC hype cycles as well to a certain extent. You know what's what's very topical and you know, you, you see it in the in in the in the words on the front doors as you walk up and down the promenade here. But I think we're about to see a very significant you know real real world adoption of of DLT technologies. We'll see. That was Scott Teal in conversation with Monocle's Christy O'Grady at the World Economic Forum in Davos. To Hollywood now, where the Emmys, delayed several months by the writers' and actors' strikes, have taken place with the bear and succession the big winners of the night. Our entertainment correspondent Laura Kramer can tell us more. Laura, who won what? All right, well, let's start out with Succession because I think everybody says this is the big winner of the night. And it started out with Sarah Snook, who won for Best Actress in a Drama Series. She was very sweet on stage. She's won all the awards so far. Always a surprise Australian as well. (laughs) That's right. She actually thanked her being pregnant during the fourth season because she said it's very easy to act when you're that hormonal. (laughs) (laughs) The emotions are right at the surface to tap into. Very easy to go to. Um, Her unscreened husband, actually, Matthew McFadden, also won for Best Supporting Actor in the same show. And he was very sweet on stage because he gave a nod to the relationship that his character has with his cousin Greg on the series. I must make special mention to um, my on-screen wife, Sarah Snook. Uh, And my other on-screen wife, Nicholas Braun. Um... Yeah, that chemistry between the two of them was, I mean, some of the best comedy. It was all sort of Shakespearean, sort of the sort of foolish duo at the side of the main plots throughout the series, wasn't it? Yeah, so good. I will never forget the water bottle incident when they're throwing water bottles at each other. It's genuinely, (laughs) it makes me cry laughing. Now, another lady who makes me cry laughing is Jennifer Coolidge. She got the Best Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for The White Lotus Season 2. And she also, in my opinion, won the award for Best Line 
Klein in an acceptance speech. So I just want to say, um, I want to thank all the evil gays. You know, I just really, really. That, of course, is a callback to her <laughs> line in The White Lotus Season 2 where she said, these gays are trying to kill me. I mean, that was, you know, talk about a career transformation. I think it's really interesting. It went from Ariana Grande doing an impression of her, I think, in 2017, 2018, to now her being so lauded in so many projects. Exactly. I mean, I remember when I was first introduced to her as Stifler's mom. Yeah, on same. Yeah. And then she was the nail technician in uh, Legally, Legally Blonde, Blonde and uh, kind of sunk into those kind of, you know, comedy roles and bit parts and things like that. But then has had a real strong resurgence. Yeah. Uh, the renaissance of Jennifer Coolidge. We're all for that. Very, <laughs> very excited. Uh, and someone else will be celebrating last night uh, because they were recovering from surgery, it seems, but they managed to get into a very exclusive club. That's right. So Elton John now has EGOT status. It's very exciting. He's now the 19th person. And what this means, it's somebody, it's a very exclusive club with 19 people. Oh, Emmy, Grammy, Tony and Oscars, and he has all of them. He got it last night for the documentary based on um, his concert. That, his that we, final U.S. concert right. at Dodger Stadium, wasn't that's it? That's yeah. right. It's on Disney+. Plus. Sadly, he wasn't there, but his husband, David Furnish, was accepted the award because Elton had knee surgery recently, and he's recovering from it. And you look through the names of people who've won it before. I mean, Viola Davis, Jennifer Hudson, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, this is really people who have mastered their craft isn't it? Exactly. And I'm just going to put this out there on air officially. I think we're going to have the youngest EGOT winner will be Billie Eilish. I think she's on track for it. She already has the Oscars and, of course, many Grammys. And she's in line for a second Oscar for That's What right. Was I Made For by Infant Barbie, wasn't she? That's but w- right. what else has she got coming up? Well, we'll see. But the youngest right now is Robert Lopez. He's 39 and she's 22. I think she's well on her way. So it's official. I've put it on air. Billie Eilish is going to be the youngest he got winner. I'm saying it right now. Do you think she could do a turn of Broadway, though? Is she that way? Oh, yeah, I think so. If you look at the Barbie soundtrack, she takes themes from Mm. a film or something and she easily puts it into into a song that actually not is just good for the show or the film that she's doing it, but also translates to airwaves. That's Mm. where her power really lies. I'm very excited about that. Now... We, we we went off track a little bit. Back to the Emmys. I think there were some real highlights for me that really stood out. One of them was there were some show reunions I that we got to see. I loved this. The Cheers cast, the Alan McBeal cast... Um, there were, what were the other ones? Grey's Anatomy, Grey's Anatomy. Catherine Heigl and they had was these up little there. sets and everything where they brought them together. It was really great to tap into that nostalgia vibe, wasn't it? And I think the Emmys wanted to do that too because it's also their 75th birthday as well as the 75th broadcast. So they wanted to celebrate that. People, another highlight for me, people were kind of expecting potentially a friends reunion, especially mm. given the the recent death of Matthew Perry. But instead, that was honored in the in memoriam segment with Charlie Puth, who did a cover. Of of the Friends theme throughout. It was a really emotional, beautiful moment. I thought that was a nice moment because he did that at a concert right after Matthew Perry died where he performed it and it really was really touchingly done last night, wasn't it? And another person who took to the stage overcoming some adversity, Christina Applegate, famous, of course, for 
back in the day being in, married with uh, children and she's been in so many other things. But uh, she's now having a, a difficult time. Yeah, that's right. She has MS, actually, and she was on stage presenting an award. And she got a standing ovation the second she came on. And it was really sweet. She actually, you could tell she was visibly emotional by it. And she says something like, you don't have to clap for me every time I do something really basic. <laughs> But it was a really sweet moment. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is a, a year where, as we mentioned, the uh, the strikes took a heavy toll on the production pipeline, which we kind of haven't seen the way that Hollywood works, where things are shot tend to be like 18 months in advance, a year in advance. We haven't seen the pipeline dry up yet. Do you think we're going to have like a dearth of shows at next year's Emmys that can that can be kind of justify getting an award? I hope so, because I do think in a way the Emmys were on the back foot. Usually they set the stage. They are still the big TV award ceremony. However, due to pushing the show back by four months, the Golden Globes were first, then the Critics' Choice. And those are also two shows within one week, actually, that all celebrate TV acting. And we got to see the same rotation of the same people winning awards. And it got to the point where I thought, like, the actress can't even act surprised at this point <laughs> because <laughs> they just keep getting called up. So that felt... Like the Emmys. But they're going to have to because we've got more coming within days, right? Well, we do because Mark, your calendar award season is heading into February very strong. This week, we're going to get the BAFTA nomination. Next week, the Oscar nominations follow. And in February, we're going to get BAFTAs, the SAGs, and the Oscar voting is going to be happening. It all is going to stop with the big one in March, the Oscars. And then, hey, in May, We kick it all off again with a Cannes Film Festival with a brand new batch of films to look forward to. It feels to. even more like a kind of election these days. It's like really hard <laughs> campaigning to get these gongs, doesn't it? Well, Laura Kramer, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Emma Searle. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Thank you.